0: Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part four of our series on horror vacui, or fear of the void, or fear of the vacuum. A concept that has relevance in art and design, where it describes an impulse to fill in blank or uniform spaces with detail, as well as uh, relevance in philosophy and in physics, where it's been used to describe the long standing belief, often derived from Aristotle, that a vacuum or a void could not exist in nature and that empty space was in fact an incoherent concept. (laughs) So in the, uh, the previous episode of this one, we talked about how this view in physics persisted through the middle ages and part of uh, the early modern period in Europe until important experiments by figures like Evangelista Torricelli, the man with the Batman symbol for a mustache or Rob, I think as you uh, pointed out had the sort of the crucifix goatee. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, sort of a crucifix Van Dyke.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Him and, uh, and Blaise Pascal, of course, established that an approximate vacuum could actually be created inside a glass tube. And that the force truly responsible for preventing a void from forming in most cases, such as in the case of like a a pump or a siphon, uh, was not nature's mysterious hatred for vacuums. But in fact, the weight of the air we breathe, known today as atmospheric pressure. But something we alluded to. In the previous episode is uh, also the fact that while the laws of nature don't exactly rule out a vacuum in the way that Aristotle and the scholastics thought, there is also some nuance to the issue. Because you can create an approximate vacuum, but it's really hard or perhaps impossible to create a perfect vacuum, uh, depending on how you define your goals. When we talk about a vacuum in, like, real-world examples instead of, you know, ideal thought experiments, we are never talking about completely empty spaces with no particles whatsoever. Instead, we're usually talking about uh, an area where the density of gas particles is very low, or the inside of a container where the density of gas particles is much lower than the density of particles on the outside. And the latter type of vacuum, where a container that has a lower density of gas particles than the world outside, is, uh, is common throughout the world of technology and electrical appliances and scientific equipment, especially of years past, but still somewhat today. Uh, a couple of classic examples, incandescent light bulbs. They make light by running current through a filament that gets so hot that it starts to emit photons, starts to glow. Uh, But these bulbs are not full of air at regular atmospheric pressure, and if they were, that would be a problem. The filament would tend to fail very quickly. That's not good for incandescent bulbs. So instead, they are typically either filled with an inert gas, like argon or nitrogen, Or they are pumped out to contain a vacuum. The earliest light bulbs were vacuum-based rather than uh, inert gas-based. Another component used in electronics, one that will be very familiar to uh, electric guitar players, is vacuum tubes which Mm -hmm. were once commonly used to manipulate current, to amplify and rectify electrical signals. They've been uh, replaced with silicon transistors in most modern devices, but they still have their uses. And by the way, if you want to see something really weird and uh, awesome, look up pictures of vacuum tube-based computers before transistors took over to become the the logic circuitry inside computers. I guess that happened roughly around uh, the 60s or so. Uh, But before that, the information processing in computers was done on large arrays of vacuum tubes. And uh, I'm very tempted to say, like, that I I wish to see a certain kind of uh, computer snobbery arise where there are, like, gamers (laughs) who are like, oh, you play on transistors? I've got a vacuum tube rig. (laughs) Yeah,
1: some of the images that come up for me, they look very, uh, there's a mad science uh, quality to these. They look like uh, there's some sort of strange experiment containing uh, you know, um, contained gases or something.
0: Yeah, it does look like that because they look like almost like kind of like pills in a blister pack. You know, the mm-hmm. little, little blisters popping out, but they're they're not containing special gases. They are containing lower density of gases. What the what those tubes contain is relatively nothing compared to the atmosphere. Uh, now, one place tubes are still popular in electrical devices today is in guitar amplifiers, where a lot of players uh prefer the feeling of playing with tubes as opposed to solid state amps. Rob, I don't know if you've ever come across this debate. Uh you know, sometimes I think people look on the tube preference as a kind of snobbery. Personally, I can see both sides. Like I think solid state amps sound great, but tubes are they're, they're cool.
1: Yeah, I not being a guitar player myself, I I I rarely get any of these conversations and I rarely uh, hear any of this. So is, is this something where I know a lot of A lot of conversations regarding uh, like retro technology and music and recording and production, it actually does come through to the final product. It actually is something that affects the final sound of the music. Is that
0: the case here? Uh, people argue about this. I okay. mean, the people argue about to what extent you can hear the difference in something that comes out of a tube amp versus a a good modern attempt to approximate that with transistors. Uh, I'm not going to try to weigh in on one side of the <laughs> debate here. Uh, basically, my experience is that uh, solid state amps sound fine. They sound great, but... Uh, There's also just something kind of cool about tubes. Uh, They might kind of feel differently when you're playing a guitar through one, especially if you're in the room with it as opposed to listening to a recording. Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, listeners, let us know. Do you think tubes are tubular or do you think uh, solid state is solid? I don't know. I will weigh in and say I think it's a stupid thing to, like, get mad at people or criticize (laughs) people about one way or another. Uh, Calm down, guys. Fair enough. But uh, coming back to the bigger point, in cases like the vacuum light bulb or the vacuum tube for current amplification, uh, the area inside the glass in these devices is, again, not a perfect vacuum. There are particles of atmosphere in there. There are just way fewer of them than in an equivalent area outside. And there are actually designations for the different levels of vacuum that are achieved through technological means. You know, you can have like a medium vacuum, a high vacuum, an ultra-high vacuum, uh, and uh, and and so so that's what's possible on Earth, uh, but then you might be wondering in uh, in response to that. Wait a minute though, isn't outer space at least a vacuum? Isn't isn't the space between the planets or the space between the stars at least a vacuum? Again, the answer here is yes and no. It depends on what you mean. Space is a vacuum when compared to Earth's atmosphere. And it is even lower density than most partial vacuums created by humans. Uh, I was trying to find a good estimate for the density of outer space, and I came across a couple things. In that book I was talking about uh, in the last episode called The Void by the, uh, by the physicist Frank Close, uh, he, he writes about uh, – well, he's writing about the reasoning – That led people to assume that outer space was a vacuum when scientists such as Blaise Pascal started to notice that the atmospheric pressure was different at different altitudes. So you go up on a mountain, the atmospheric pressure is lower. That does tend to suggest that if you go higher and higher, the density of particles just keeps getting lower and lower, and you would eventually reach an altitude at which there was effectively uh, no no air to breathe anymore. There was no atmosphere anymore, which uh, some people found maybe kind of like threatening in principle or maybe threatening to their theological ideas of how the universe was put together. Nevertheless, you you could show it was true. As you go higher and higher, the density gets lower. So uh, Close writes, quote, At a height of 100 kilometers, the pressure is less than a billionth of that on the ground. At 400 kilometers, a million millionth. And on route to the moon in space, it is down by 10 to the 19, an amount that is less than the size of a proton compared to a kilometer. We can thus say that essentially all of the atmosphere is a thin shell whose thickness is less than one thousandth of the Earth's radius. Wow, I, I don't doubt that's true, but that's the kind of thing that I don't even I don't usually picture it that way. I, you know, I picture the atmosphere as extending much higher up off the surface of the Earth.
1: Yeah, you know, for 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 me, this uh, like the, the the reality of um, of the, the thinning of the air. Uh, at the higher altitude you get to, this was always kind of spelled out for me uh, by looking at something like the Lockheed U-2, the uh, the, mm. the spy aircraft that yeah. had have, have these just a super long, um, a super wide wingspan that enabled it, to, one of several design functions, but the most obvious one that enabled it to uh, to, to, to to fly at such high altitudes where there's just uh, there's less air.
0: Yeah, as the air is thinner, it's harder and harder to generate lift. But, okay, that's how much thinner the atmosphere gets as you extend up off of the surface of the Earth. Uh, What about when you go even beyond that? Well, I came across some uh, sort of quick and dirty estimates by a radio astronomer named Alistair Gunn doing a short uh, Q&A for the BBC, and note that the following are approximate. But what Gunn says is that roughly within the solar system, uh, space between the planets contains an average of about five atoms per cubic centimeter. So that's very low density, but there still is gas out there. It's just extremely dispersed. In interstellar space, the space between solar systems in our galaxy, so like where uh, you know where the Voyager probes are eventually headed to, or where Oumuamua came from. That interstellar space has about one atom per cubic centimeter, according to Gunn here. And then in intergalactic space, the space between galaxies, uh, the density is about 100 times less than that. It gets pretty lonely out there. Right. But still, there are not no particles. They just get farther and farther apart on average. So the reason space is so empty is, of course, gravity. Objects with mass attract one another, so mass tends to clump together over time, creating this varied terrain of cosmic density with very high density, say, in the middle of a star— and still uh, still lower density around that star and around the planets around that star, and then lower density in between the stars, and then lower density in between the galaxies, and so forth. But it wasn't always this way. In the early history of the universe, matter was dispersed far more evenly, and you could think of the early universe in a way as a kind of well, in a, in a strange way, almost kind of like an ocean, I guess it wasn't liquid, but like an ocean or a cloud or something where uh, there were there were m- more uniform distributions. But then as space expanded, that more varied terrain that we know today influenced by gravity emerged. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So we have
0: yeah, the accretion
1: of these uh, uh, various cosmic bodies of different sizes and then the resulting sort of
0: uh, shrinkage between these accretions. So, in a weird way, you could argue that Aristotle is kind of technically vindicated in that there probably are no large-scale, long-term areas of perfectly empty space in the universe. But I think that in the normal way of understanding Aristotle, he was wrong. You, you can create a volume of functional vacuum, but it's not a perfect vacuum. Mm,
1: yeah, and it sounds like you can also do a fair amount of uh, arguing over the size of said vacuum.
0: Yeah. This was making me wonder, like, what is, what is the average density of the universe overall? <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, so I was looking around at that. I, I did find a, a NASA page on this. Uh, this is according to research, I think, carried out by, the, by WMAP, by the Wilkinson Microwave Anisotropy Probe, uh, that was looking at fluctuations in the cosmic microwave background. And in, uh, in a write-up on that research by NASA, they, they say, quote, WMAP determined that the universe is flat— from which it follows that the mean energy density in the universe is equal to the critical density within a 0.5% margin of error. This is equivalent to a mass density of, because, uh, as an aside, ultimately mass and energy can be exchanged for one another. They are Mm -hmm. equivalent, you know, uh, mass is just a huge amount of energy. Um, Coming back to the quote, this is equivalent to a mass density of 9.9 times 10 to the negative 30 grams per cubic centimeter. But... The density of normal matter is not even that high because most of the energy density in the universe is not normal matter. It's dark matter or dark energy. So maybe normal is not even the right word because the kind of matter we're talking about that we're familiar with is the minority of stuff. Less than 5% of the stuff in the universe is actually made of atoms. So the, uh, the the quote, actual energy density of atoms is equivalent to roughly one proton per four cubic meters so you can imagine kind of a uh uh, like a large pallet box and that's Mm -hmm. like got one proton in there and that's the the average density of the universe yes so if we were to like redistribute it
1: that's how it would play out
0: i think we should redistribute it (laughs) get a fresh start on this thing now
1: these numbers are admittedly um, may, maybe a little bit challenging to sort of picture in your head all the time, but I do like that we're dealing with with, with hard. Numbers here, we're doing dealing with uh, uh, objective um, uh, numbers related to uh, the vacuum and the void. Uh, Something we don't always have in this particular uh, journey. (laughs) Uh, Sometimes we're dealing with very very subjective qualities.
0: Oh, you mean like uh, Aristotle's argument that uh, you couldn't have empty space because if it not be body, it could not exist.
1: Yeah, or yeah. certainly getting into some of the, the philosophical uh, ends of the spectrum where we're we're dealing with uh, what's the difference between uh, emptiness and nothingness? Uh, what's the difference between eternity and nothing? Um, <laughs> it can it can get a little uh, loosey goosey.
0: Well, the difference between uh, I'm going to defend uh, exploring the difference between emptiness and nothingness. I think that is a an interesting distinction, but one mm-hmm. that I'm not sure science has has all the answers on.
1: Yeah. I mean, a lot of it does come down to the subjective experience. I was talking with my wife before I came in here, and she brought up the example of isolation tanks. Isolation tanks being a situation where, on one level, you have certainly limited your space. You are isolated or within a tank. You're floating within a tank. Uh, and therefore, uh, you're cutting off how much of like the the outside world you are in. But then there is also something to the experience uh, that is boundary breaking. You mm. know, floating in this salt um, bath that is the same temperature as your body uh, serves to sort of break down the division between where you stop and the rest of the world begins. So, uh, yeah, th- There are plenty of cases like you don't have to have an isolation tank to uh, engage in that kind of uh, boundary dispute. You
0: know, I think it's interesting that people often seek uh, maybe not isolation tanks exactly, but isolation from stimuli specifically in order to be creative. Isn't Mm -hmm. that kind of strange? That almost implies that they think a, a principle of psychological horror vacui is going to come into effect, right? That if you rob yourself Of the normal, overwhelming stimuli of everyday existence, you will get your eye like you will team with ideas.
1: Yeah, but it is one of these things, too, where it's like a lot of times you're just you're just changing out one. High stimuli environment for another, mm-hmm. uh, and maybe it's just a new one, a novel one. Like when you go to the beach and you walk on the beach, yeah, it's a different experience than just being, uh, you know, stuck in a city or in a library or in your own house. But I mean, the, there's a lot going on at the beach. You know, there's mm-hmm. crashing waves and expanses of sand and birds and all sorts of uh, little shells to look at. Likewise, of course, a, a walk through the woods is just. I mean, we've we've talked about this before on, on the podcast. Like your your senses are are able to fully engage in the environment for which they have uh, evolved, uh, taking in all these details and and changing details in the world around
0: you. Oh, yeah, that does relate to these theories about how nature tends to engage our attention in a different Mm -hmm. way than than built environments do. And that essentially that it... uh, I, I've forgotten all the details of exactly what that theory is, but that it uh, that it, nature can basically be absorbing to the attention, but essentially not stress-inducing, I think.
1: Yeah, and of course, this is not even getting into social isolation, cutting yourself off from uh, wanted and unwanted uh, social connections. Uh, certainly, uh, there's a lot to be said for cutting yourself off from the um, uh, connection to one smart device and uh, the Internet and so forth.
0: Finally, before we move on from this, I was wondering, like, what are the superlatives in terms of vacuums created by humans in the laboratory or, uh, or, or with the aid of technology? Uh, what's the lowest pressure humans can achieve? I'm not sure what the answer is in terms of the lowest pressure overall, but I definitely came across a contender, and it is certainly one of the most impressive artificial vacuum systems ever created by humans, if not the lowest pressure. And it's actually the Large Hadron Collider, uh, mm. the world's largest particle accelerator, which is operated by the uh, by the European Organization for Nuclear Research, or CERN. I believe it is still the largest vacuum system in operation in the world. It was certainly at the time it was uh, put together, and I can't think of what would be larger than it. But it has more than 100 kilometers of piping held in a state of vacuum for various purposes. There has to be ultra-high vacuum piping for the actual particle beams to travel through so that, like, the accelerated particles don't collide with gas molecules and ruin the experiments. I'm I'm not sure what would happen if they did collide. Maybe it could be worse than ruining experiments. Certainly wouldn't be good. You don't want it. Mm -hmm. But there are also advanced vacuum systems used to like, insulate other elements of the collider, such as the, uh, the magnets or the, the helium distribution line. So a lot, lot of evacuated space going on at, uh, at the LHC facility. And it's at extremely low density. They compare uh, various vacua that they create to the density of interstellar space. So that is horror vacuum in in physics. But one thing I've been wanting to come back to is the fear of emptiness or the fear of empty spaces as as an actual literal fear that humans feel. The kind of uneasiness that one experiences in a depopulated space.
1: Yeah, this topic of uh, kinophobia um, and some and some other related terms. I figure a, a good place to start on all of this might be to return to cinema. We talked a little bit about cin- cinema earlier in this journey. And in fact, we talked about the 1977 Dario Argento horror classic Suspiria. And there's a, a there's a scene in that film that instantly came to mind uh, when I was thinking about this fear, this horror associated with depopulated spaces, like you're saying. Uh, and if you've seen Suspiria, the original, um, uh, though I, I really like the remake as well. And I don't think they recreated this scene in the remake, but I could be wrong. Uh, mm. This scene involves a blind man walking through an open, unoccupied city plaza at night. There are no other human beings in sight. The environment is is pretty well illuminated, though there are still some deep pockets of shadow. Uh, there's a growing sense of threat and terror. And eventually, and I think we get some very wide shots here, too, to really take in uh, all that space. Mm-hmm. And then as the tension builds, the dog begins to bark and in a, in a nasty twist, because, again, this is a Jollot film and they, they're often nasty. Uh, the dog turns on the blind man and kills him. Um, but the way the scene builds up to that moment takes just full advantage of this very open space. Uh, this, this feeling that there's just something wrong in the openness of all of this. That There's just this one individual and his dog out here and something terrible is about to happen.
0: I think this scene is a fantastic example, especially because of how different it is than than most of uh, uh, most of Suspiria and most of other uh, you know Italian horror films or Jallo films, uh, which we noted in the first episode in the series, are uh, they are often recognized for being especially visually busy. You know they have mm-hmm. that artistic sense of horror vacui, as in you you sense a desire to fill in all empty or uniform spaces with detail and richness and stuff. You know they're full of patterns. And so I think this scene of you know the man who is unfortunately cursed by the witches, and then this this attack happens on him, it, it gets especially scary because it's so unlike the rest of the movie, having all this mm-hmm. emptiness and blank space in the night. But I w- I was thinking about this and about how the horror genre in particular tends to favor blank, vacant. Empty locations in multiple ways. Uh, So, one way is that they tend to favor settings that are like literally emptied. In, In the narrative sense, they are literally emptied of human activity or neglected by humans in some way. So, think of how much horror loves like abandoned or empty buildings and settlements. Maybe the first idea that comes to my mind is Dracula's castle, which is interesting because it is a castle that has no servants bustling about, no Mm -hmm. courtiers, uh, just empty halls and chambers. And then the solitary figure of Dracula himself as the host. It's kind of like a like a where's Waldo, except there's just one guy there on the page and he and he's really (sighs) staring at your neck.
1: Oh, man, that would be a great twist on a Where's Waldo book. Where's Dracula? And uh, each each page is a massive uh, level of Dracula's castle, and there's just Dracula.
0: There's nothing there. <laughs> it's just him. There are no other Waldos. Mm-hmm. By the way, this reminds me of one of my favorite scenes in uh, the uh, movie Shadow of the Vampire from the year 2000, which uh, stars it's a sort of a horror comedy about the making of the movie Nosferatu. Mm. But it it says that Max Schreck, the actor who plays Nosferatu in the movie, uh, played by Willem Dafoe in this movie, was actually a vampire. That is what Mm. it assumes. And uh, it's kind of a great premise. And there's a moment where they ask uh, uh, the character who is in this telling a real vampire if he read the novel Dracula he says yes he says the novel made him sad and they said why and he says because Dracula had no servants (laughs) I forgot about
1: that part that's good
0: but it is kind of sad isn't it like when when Harker in the novel realizes that like It was the count himself who had to set out the meal for him and so forth. There's something kind of uh, not like not like I want vampires to have servants, but I don't know. There's something kind of lonely and uneasy about it. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that it's in a castle. It's in this big space meant to be occupied by many people, but he's the only one there. I mean, I guess later we find out there are some other, you know, ghoul-type creatures. But at first, it's just empty except for him. But think of other movies with just abandoned locations, ghost towns, abandoned settlements, you know, empty empty streets and other places at night and so forth. Uh, Rob, I'm not sure if you've noticed the same thing, but it strikes me that— Horror movies especially favor locations that are not just empty as a matter of course, like you'd expect them to be empty, but pl- locations that are empty in contrast to how we usually see them.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, this is often played to great effect in various ghost towns and your westerns and, of course, depopulated cities. Like, it's yeah. it's not enough to just replace the uh, you know you get into like post apocalyptic scenarios where there's like destroyed cities and bodies and so forth and yes zombies Um, but that doesn't mean you're necessarily going for this uh, this total feeling of emptiness uh, this this sense that uh, that all the activity and presence that was there previously is just gone Uh, but one example that does come to mind and this is a zombie film but 28 days later of course has all those wonderful shots of what depopulated London and uh, our, our, our character walking around down there and sort of experiencing just the overwhelming emptiness of the city.
0: I think that's a great example. It's incredibly unnerving, that opening. Uh, so you could contrast that with, like, uh, say, a, a movie with scenes in a desert or a forest mm-hmm. wilderness, which might be empty of human activity, but we would expect them to be empty of human activity. And in cases where movies focus on that, in the horror genre at least, the horror usually comes from when you find something or someone or suspect the presence of something or someone that you wouldn't usually expect to encounter there. Instead, locations that I think of as most common to horror movies are like empty versions of places you would usually expect to be full. So not just cities like at the beginning of Twenty Eight Days Later, but think of empty hospitals at the night shift, empty churches and cathedrals. Where's the congregation? Empty school buildings after hours. Empty, empty castles, like I said at the beginning. Uh, You know, what happened to the crew of the Event Horizon? Why is this spaceship empty? Uh, So I, I think empty locations like this lend themselves well to horror for multiple reasons. One is a kind of just like literal understanding of, of danger in the world. Like, you know, there's an uneasiness that comes from a location being empty because it sort of means like you're on your own against whatever might threaten you. But if the location's mm-hmm. full of people, you might be able to get help from the werewolf if it's going to come at you. Like people usually feel safer in numbers for totally good and logical reasons.
1: You know, two examples that come to mind, they're very related because they both involve the same sort of location, I think. Both of these examples kind of uh, maybe, you know, bend this line a little bit and, and, and blur the distinction between uh, emptiness being invigorating and empowering and it being terrifying. Mm-hmm. They both take place in shopping malls and, of course, thinking about Dawn of the Dead from George Romero and shopping mall both films in which our characters find themselves in a depopulated mall, shopping mall environment. And, uh, and eventually they're going to have to deal with, of course, zombies in one film and oh, and also um, like evil bikers in that one film. But then yeah. in the other film, they're going to have to deal with killer robots. And in both of these, there's kind of like this, um, I don't know, this kind of, I guess, uh, capitalist rebellion um, energy to them, where it's like the, this, this place that contained me through commerce and also, just the social environment of the mall. Now, those constraints are not there, and I can just go into any uh, any store in the mall and steal things. Uh, and then, but then on the other hand, uh, yes, it's like all the things that made this a normal place, that made this a you know cathedral of uh, of American culture during the nineteen eighties or, or what have you. Uh, that's gone as well. There's something unholy about the environment.
0: That's a great observation. Yeah, about the malls in these movies. It's like the. The fact that we see them with all of the people taken out of them, not shopping anymore, Mm -hmm. just automatically invites questions, kind of critical questions about what this place was for in the first place and what it meant. Yeah. And of course, yeah, invites that uneasy feeling. And I think that goes to the next thing. So there was the thing I already said about empty locations are in a very literal sense. They're scarier just because like their safety in numbers. But but empty uh, locations and abandoned locations, I think, are also good fodder for horror on a conceptual level, because in some cases they invite you to wonder why the place is empty. Like what happened here? Where did the people go? Or, as you just said, they invite you to sort of uh, look upon the purpose of the place with a newly critical eye. Like, uh, when, when people are not doing the things they're normally doing in this place, what is this place actually for? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, we discussed some of that in our, um, and you alluded to this a little bit already, but uh, the episodes that we did about uh, Christmas ghost stories yes. uh, from Northern Europe uh, that deal with uh, this whole question. Like, what is a church if it is midnight and no one is there? Like, is it still a church? And if it is still a church, what what does
0: that mean? Is it still sacred or does the sacredness come from the, uh, you know, the congregation and the acts they do inside it and so Mm forth? Could the same building, the church, be used for unholy rites? Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. But finally, I think there are also conceptual suggestions like a place that is empty in contrast to the expectation that it should be full, like all of these depopulated places we've been talking about, that has long been associated with death, right? Like you would think under normal old ideas, like humans have left this formerly inhabited place, like a a soul leaving a body. But in addition to all these more literal concerns, I think horror films in particular, but other genres as well – often use blank space, also known as negative space, in the frame of uh, of the film as a visual marker to create uneasiness. So this is less literal about like what is threatening the characters and more just kind of the feelings that we get from how a movie looks. I don't know how much of this is a natural psychological expectation that humans have and how much is just sort of a... Uh, like a learned convention, an emergent convention of filmmaking that we have all learned implicitly from watching movies. But I think the baseline fact is that when we see negative space in a movie, we somewhat expect it to become filled. There's empty space on the screen. We expect something to come to occupy that space. And of course, once you have expectation You have the ability to create tension and by denying the fulfillment of that expectation, like, you know, like a a character peers out into the darkness and it's uniform darkness, not not filled in with detail. There's no detail or they look into an empty room with nothing in it or some other negative space. We expect something to happen, something to fill that space or to come into view. And if it doesn't, that is unresolved tension and uneasiness and the sort of the prime example, like one of the core feelings that is evoked by weird fiction and cinema.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think a great recent example of all this would be Jordan Peele's note. Uh, that came out uh, just last year. Uh, I'm not going to do any spoilers for it because I don't think you've seen it yet. Have you,
0: Joe? I still haven't. No. Okay. And
1: and I know a lot of listeners haven't. So I'm not going to spoil it. But I will say that uh, there are a lot of shots that establish the sky as the domain of some manner of inhuman threat, and and uh, and then below beneath the sky you have the this wonderful California desert setting as well. So it's very geographically open, but then mm. you have this open sky. You also have some some wonderful clouds at play, both during the the, the daytime sequences and the nighttime sequences. But still, it does this fabulous job of establishing um, a cloudy or even open sky as being possibly a threat, and I found when I watched it in the theater, when I left the theater, when I left the dark theater and went out into the day because it was a matinee uh, that I attended, uh, instantly I kind of felt in danger. I kind of <laughs> felt some of the <laughs> danger from the film still, like, residually coursing through my body to where I was like, let's go ahead and get to the car. I don't want to, I, I don't feel great walking across this, this wide open parking lot beneath this, uh, this scary sky.
0: Oh, boy. Well, I I will admit that when I come out of a matinee, I often feel uneasy. Uh, no matter what the movie was, I, there there's just something weird about coming out of a darkened movie theater and it's still light outside. Yeah, <laughs> it's like other oh,
1: world is. It's like what's what's going on? Yeah, it's, it's strange. It's
0: it it it, it kind of reminds me of that feeling like when you take too long of a nap in the middle of the day. It's like mm-hmm. oof. Uh, yeah, it's disorienting. You you've you've been yeah. in a
1: cave watching a cinema. And then uh, then you go out into the real world. Now, in thinking about how Note made me temporarily feel about open skies, I did find it interesting to come across various mentions of a supposed phobia online dubbed Cassidastrophobia, which is described as a fear of essentially falling up into the sky. Hmm. Now, I, I couldn't find any academic discussion of this uh, alleged phobia, and I'm not doubting anyone's experiences around it, because for starters, there's plenty of room for anxiety and paranoia to creep up in one's experience of reality. Um, it may simply just be newly defined and understudied, um, but to whatever extent it's an actual phobia, it it would seem to be kind of a subset of this idea of kinophobia, pronounced fear of 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 the open, you know, a a feeling that this open sky might either swallow you up or somehow gravity is going to fail and
0: you'll float up into it. That is an interesting fear because it doesn't correspond to anything that I can think of that ever happens in reality. And it's very specific.
1: Yeah. And. It's interesting because I can kind of relate to these overwhelming fee- feelings of viewing either a clear blue sky in the day or certainly a sprawling starscape in a rural environment where you're free of light pollution and cloud cover and everything's really expansive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it, but it's also it's weird because these are both vistas that can be very inspiring and beautiful. But can maybe reach the point of being overwhelming, and and maybe it ends up having this effect where you think about uh, what would happen if I, like, what, what if I just fell up into it? And it doesn't make any sense. Nobody's like, this is not going to happen. You have you have a number of other concerns if gravity stops working, um, besides you know where you're going to float to. But um, but yeah, I can. I can sort of look back on times in my life where I've been looking up at like a big clear blue sky or some sort of a starscape and feeling this, especially with the blue sky. I think there are times where I looked up at the starscape and I was maybe a little afraid of aliens more than I was afraid of just falling up into the blue. Hmm.
0: Were you afraid of aliens because you watched unsolved mysteries and they had the yes. scary yes. yes
1: as a child i was uh, i was afraid of it afraid of aliens because there was no counter narrative i think i've discussed this on the show before yeah you would just encounter uh, uh this uh, this episode or episodes of unsolved mysteries and they're like yep there might be aliens out there it seems like there's good evidence for it i don't know and you know you didn't have carl sagan coming on afterwards
0: and explaining all the reasons why you shouldn't be worried that would be hilarious. Each episode ends with, like, a formal debate between Robert Stack and Carl C. <laughs> <laughs> Um
1: Yeah. That, so, but with the, with the blue, uh, it's hard to say. It's just at times I felt kind of an, an unnerving sense when there was, like, this really big blue sky. I don't know. I'll get back to this. but um, But it also... I went on a tangent here where I was reminded of something that Geraldine Pinch discusses in her book, Egyptian Mythology, Mm -hmm. about how the cloudless skies above ancient Egypt would have provided ready viewing of the stars and planets, thus instilling a great interest in the movement of the heavens in Egyptian mythology. And... Uh, this, I, I wasn't able to find a satisfying answer on this, but I, I mean, it, this definitely seems to be the case with the ancient Egyptians, but the ancient Egyptians were not the only people to find uh, the sky very interesting. They weren't the only ones to have a, uh, an advanced astronomy. I mean, you look at various examples from the ancient world, the Babylonians, the Greeks, uh, India, China, Persia, uh, the Mayans, uh, they all had robust astronomical systems. mm mm-hmm. And there there are disciplines that look into this sort of question, like how did the perception of the sky and the understanding of the cosmos, uh, the movements of the stars more specifically, like how did this affect a given civilization and their beliefs and their views? You have the, the disciplines of uh, archaeoastronomy and ethnoastrology. And there's a lot of interesting work out there concerning, say, for example, certain architectural traditions and to what extent they were created with astronomy and astronomical data in mind.
0: Oh, yeah, I see. Like uh, buildings that may or may not have been intended to align with the stars in a certain way.
1: Yeah. And so what I guess I was curious about was, okay, does this mean that are you going to have certain civilizations located in regions or with High population density in regions that had maybe more unobstructed views of the night sky would they lean towards a more robust uh, astronomical culture or something? Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't encounter much to really back that up. You know, the, 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 there wasn't much that I was encountering uh, that said that there's any kind of like astrophilic or astrophobic division between cultures or anything. Not that I could tell. If it's out there and I missed it and you know about it, listeners, uh, write in and let me know. But more often, you seem to see this mix related to astronomical traditions that uh, where a culture, a civilization realizes that, okay, you know, the, the trackable movement of the sun and the stars is linked to various cycles of life, the passage of time, the seasons, navigation. And then you also have purely supernatural concepts, such as omens and portents, and the, looking to the the stars to try and divine the future, and and looking for yeah individual data, data about the individual experience uh, in the heavens, uh, alongside broader information about uh, like how life works uh, in the long term on Earth. Mm-hmm. So within a given astronomical culture, there might be a number of, Im- of important but kind of mundane considerations about the sky alongside loftier religious cosmological ideas and negative superstitions concerning certain anomalies, such as, say, eclipses, which we've discussed in the show before, uh, mm-hmm. as well as things like certain lunar phases and and other things that might uh, in some cases might be out of the ordinary or somehow novel.
0: But being anomalies, these would probably not be things where the source of the anxiety is anything you could identify as like fear of the openness of the sky?
1: Right, right, yeah. It's more you read about you know some of these uh, eclipse myths and all. There are fear based um, interpretations of them and and uh, and myths involving, you know, some sort of monster-threatening reality and so forth. Uh, but then on the other side, you have, uh, even though they, they may seem like strange anomalies out of nowhere to some observers, and perhaps at some times, uh, you're still going to have astronomy get on top of that, as we discussed in those, those episodes we did on eclipse myths. And, uh, it, you know, people begin to realize, okay, these things are trackable, and we can tell when they will occur,
0: or we can predict them.
1: Now, within the context of horror, um, this idea of fearing the sky, fearing big open places, um, it does uh, line up uh, not only thematically, but specifically with the 20th century writings of uh, H.P. Lovecraft. Mm. I was looking around and, you know, I don't think I, I don't remember reading this story, but there's a 1921 story titled The Other Gods, uh, and there 's this bit in it where the character who's i 'm sure clearly um, going mad, thinking about um, you know the, uh, some sort of monstrous uh, reality all around him, uh, exclaims, "The other gods, the other gods, the gods of the outer hells that guard the feeble gods of earth, look away, go back, do not see, do not see the vengeance of the infinite abysses, that cursed that damnable pit,
0: merciful gods of earth, I am falling into the sky, Ah, yeah, well, that kind of fear does seem to fit into the I mean, probably not just Lovecraft, but you could say the broader convention of of cosmic horror, which uh, mm-hmm. you know is uh, horror that that has a lot to do not just with like specific threats to the individual characters, but a kind of uh, a, a terror at the idea of the insignificance of humankind when compared to some kind of greater force or greater meaninglessness in the in the the cosmos as a whole. And one way you could really imagine that. Uh, that sort of absurdity or meaninglessness being highlighted is just like, uh, I don't know, capricious violations of the laws of physics. Suddenly you fall up instead of down.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a there's a lot of that in the the, the weird fiction world. Um, and a lot of this is uh, is described as being in line with the literary philosophy of cosmicism. Which is this idea that yeah the, the universe is just teeming with alien threats, monster gods from space, but also it 's related to this fear uh, regarding humanity 's seemingly inconsequential place in a vast and alien universe, mm. and I think this is often you know you often see this emerging in a context of of uh, of uh, our increasing scientific understanding of of who we are and what the planet is and, uh, you know, and getting away from these older ideas about, uh, and, and also religious ideas about the importance of earth, the importance of humanity. Uh, and then what are you left with? Um, in, in, or at least what are you left with maybe in your darker moments or in your, your moments of doubt?
0: Right. I mean, it's sort of the, uh, Antisocial side of the Copernican principle. (laughs) Yeah. So like, yeah, I I don't think the Copernican principle, like the fact that you should not assume that you are looking at the universe from a privileged place or that you are the center of the universe. Instead, you should um, assume you are looking at the universe from an average place within the universe. And, of course, that goes along with our discovery of, uh, you know, the Earth not being the center of the solar system and so forth. Uh, I think that's just a a fact of life. And that is a a good way to look at the universe. One need not feel despairing about it. But if one chooses to feel despairing about that realization, you kind of end up in the cosmic horror area.
1: Yeah. And in, in the case of Lovecraft in particular, and perhaps related authors as well, you're not just dealing with this uh, fear of cosmic uh, insignificance either. Uh, you know, you also have to throw in there uh, a healthy dose of misanthropy, of xenophobia and so forth. So mm-hmm. uh, put that all in the stew together and um, yeah, you know, a lot of horror can, can emerge. But also, yeah, this, this feeling that maybe nothing matters. But a lot of this, I think, this this thinking about the sky and this feeling about uh, these, these perhaps fears of falling into the sky, and maybe they're not like, you know, a literal fear like, oh, I better hold on to the grass, but just this sort of overwhelming sense of, of the vast. Uh, I think a lot of it does come back to what we discussed earlier, this connection between um, the infinite and the finite, between uh, how vistas of great expanse can affect us so to one line of thinking clear blue sky might be relaxing and a brilliant starscape inspiring but to others this could certainly be overpowering perhaps bringing out feelings of vulnerability and insignificance
0: yes certainly and this comes back to um you know something we talked about a couple of episodes ago about like the the difference in Art styles that people use to uh, to create sacred or restful or contemplative spaces in uh, Mm -hmm. in different environments and how uh, it's not clear that there's always a correlation in this direction, but it's possible that you could have trends where. People who spend more of their time in a kind of like a busy environment might be more inclined to have their sacred or restful or contemplative spaces decorated in a minimalist way that has more blankness, more uniformity of color and things like that. Whereas people who live in uh, in more pastoral environments might be more attracted to sacred, restful or uh, or contemplative spaces that are full of rich detail. And the example was uh, Tibetan art.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I think I think all of that applies here as well. Uh again, this this becomes so subjective uh depending on where one's head is and um, and, and you know what you're thinking about and then suddenly you encounter say a, a wide open space or an enclosed space and then how does that affect uh, how you're feeling? Now I was looking around for uh, other other sources commenting on some of this, and I did find um, a very interesting paper by Dr. Uh, Francisco Mata. The paper is titled "A, uh, a Phenomenological Investigation of the uh, Presencing of Space," <laughs> and this was uh, uh, this, is a, this is an interesting paper. You can find it online um, and uh, and read it uh, for free if it interests you. But I just want to read one quote from it that kind of gets down to what we're talking about here. Quote. However, this search for freedom or empowerment can be frightening. Whenever one is searching for what we used to call a horizontality and puts oneself in situations in which one may perceive larger volumes of space, one runs the risk of losing sight of the limits of such a volume, in which case one will likely feel kinophobic. One may have this fearful experience since one has no anchors of reference, and therefore one is unable to become aware of any volume of space. For example, when out at sea, departing from the coastline and heading farther and farther into the ocean, one comes to be in the midst of a vast extension of limitless water. Kinophobia is, in fact, the opposite of being placed, the being at home that comes with topophilia. So that's interesting. I like that explanation a lot. This feeling of uh, that you could be hit with that, again, this is highly subjective, but you encounter this vast expanse of ocean or sky or desert and you you lose sight of the limits. And you might think, well, you know, I have no place here. I have I have no belonging here. This the overwhelming scope of the world kind of unhinges me from that, like that spatial sense of belonging. All right. Looks like we've gone the limit here. We're, uh, we're late for the sky, so we're going to go ahead and, and close it out. But we'd love to hear from everyone out there if you have, have thoughts and reflections on all this. I'd especially love to hear from anyone out there who's had a, a similar or conflicting reaction to, uh, say, a a very open blue sky or a very open um, star vista at night, Uh, it'd be be interesting to continue to discuss this on our Listener Mail episodes. Our Listener Mail episodes, of course, publish on Mondays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Our core science episodes are on Tuesdays and Thursdays, short-form monster fact on Wednesdays. And then on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a strange film on Weird House Cinema.
0: Huge thanks to our audio producer, J.J. Pawsway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app.
1: Zumo Zumo Play.